Good morning. Today's passage comes from Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. So if you're new with us or you're visiting, we, we make our way through the Psalms every summer. Uh, and over the last several years, we've gone one Psalm after another, and we don't pick and choose. We just, whatever Psalm's coming up, that's what we look at, and that's what we preach. Uh, and we trust the Lord to work all that out. So Psalm 58, uh, I'm going to try and summarize it in short, in like a sentence. Is there prevailing justice on the earth? No. But God is just. And he is coming. David, you can see how David worked all of that out through meditation and prayer. He worked through his own anger and hatred through meditation and prayer, not by action, at least not at first. When he was angry, he didn't immediately act. He meditated on truth and he prayed. It's presumed today that when you are incensed by injustice in the world or in your life, when you feel like you have been wronged or your people have been wronged, you react. That's the presumption. You react. You react immediately. You respond in kind. You insult. You injure. You litigate. You sue. You attack. You post. You riot. You do something right away. Now, there is time to act. There is a time to act. There is a time to speak. Don't get me wrong. But not before you work it out internally. This is why the Psalms help us. This is why we look at the Psalms every summer. This is why I hope we as a church will get through all 150 Psalms at some point someday. Because the Psalms teach the believer meditation and prayer. I'm not saying that injustice and sin should not anger us. It should. If anything, we're probably not angry enough. But we all have politicians in, in this country and, and bosses in our lives and even parents or friends and family members who have deeply hurt us, right? 
Some people in your life have personally failed you. Some people in our society or in the world with great power and, and authority to lead have really failed you, failed you, haven't they? But you know what? By putting greater hope in God's justice, we become less unglued when we see injustice on the earth. By putting our greatest hope in God's coming justice, in who he is as a just and merciful God, we become less confused, less disenfranchised, less undone when we see injustice in this world, when we are treated unjustly. And so you're going to see today through Psalm 58 how David meditated on a question that he had and was able to find an answer for it through meditation and prayer. And we're going to see how through meditation David acknowledged the reality in which he lived, the reality he was facing, and was able to find a response for it. And how through meditation and prayer David saw his predicament and the human predicament clearly and then was able to find hope in a coming reward. All through meditation and prayer, David was able to answer his own question, he was able to find a good response to the reality he was in, and he was able to find hope in a reward beyond the predicament that he and all of humanity is in. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Question and answer, reality and response, predicament and reward. And I'm telling you, it's because he knew how to meditate and pray, and so do you. David meditated on a question and its answer. He poses a question and he answers his own question. So look at verse one, here's the question. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? I actually prefer, so we're reading out of the English Standard Version. I actually prefer the New International Version's alternate, instead of saying, um, do you decree what is right, you gods? It says, do you indeed decree what is right, you rulers? Uh, because scholars say the Hebrew phrase there is very difficult to interpret, so rulers seems to fit the context of the entire psalm better. Do you indeed decree what is right, you rulers? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? David is looking at human leadership. He's looking at world events. Remember, he, he became a king, and before that, he was a military uh, commander, so he was very much in, he was sucked into the heart of current events, right, and, and, and world regional events. So he's looking at all that. He's even looking at the situations of his own life, and he's asking the basic question, is there justice on the earth? And his answer, verse 2, no. He didn't even have to think about it for very long. Is there justice on the earth? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. David was reflecting as a person who was very well acquainted with violence, with war, with having adversaries, with facing betrayal himself from when he was a very young man. David is, is not only reading the news and reflecting like a philosopher or, an, or a, 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 you know, a cable news pundit. As a military commander, as a king, he is reflecting based on personal knowledge of the way things are, of the reality of things. And his response is no, there is not prevailing justice on the earth. 
That is his reflection. And he goes into detail in verses four and five. He describes what human leaders are like. He says they have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the dead adder, so like, like a cobra, okay? Like, like, the dead ad, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or of the cunning enchanter. So he's, he's providing an image here. He's imagining a deadly predator that won't be charmed by the snake charmer, a deadly predator that will not be manipulated, that will not be soothed to calm down. No charming, no taming. This predator is focused. Right? You, you can't manipulate this predator. So he's saying through that imagery that those who rule on earth are both deadly and deaf. They're deadly and deaf. They're dangerous and unteachable. And that is a horrible combination. I want you to think about all the world wars that were started and perpetuated far too long because leaders were dangerous and unteachable. Think of all the injustices and oppressions of human history, and even in our own society, because people in power, because the establishment was, first of all, dangerous and bent on maintaining power, and second of all, unteachable, unwilling to listen to advisors, unwilling to take good advice. David is saying that is what the leaders of this world are like. They are both unmerciful and unteachable. Now, is that true always of everyone? Of course not. By God's common grace, some leaders throughout history, some leaders today are relatively just, are less selfish than others, but not perfect, not even close especially not David, who is one of the best in biblical history. Even the best regimes are still unable to bring pervasive peace, long-lasting judge justice. Is that not true, right? Um, think of Robert Frost, nothing gold can stay. And that was even true in David's own leadership as possibly Israel's best king ever. Now, only after meditation, notice this, only after he meditates does David begin to pray. You ever feel so distracted in your prayers, you, get, you, you forget what you're praying about, and you start, think of, start thinking of everything you have to do today and everybody you're angry with, and you start thinking about the car you've got to buy and the dishes that you, right? And all of a sudden you're like, what in the, I was supposed to be praying. What am I doing now? Prayer can be so much more effective if you begin with meditation because now your heart is focused. Now you have something to pray about. And so only after meditating on this question and answer does David begin to pray. And he begins with a request, and we don't have time to get into it, but basically I'll summarize verses six through nine by saying he asks God to stifle the wicked. He asks God to dampen their impact. He's basically, he uses all of these vivid images to say, Lord, please stop the wicked before they get started. Please stifle them so that they can't fulfill their plans. Please shut them down before they make things worse. And after that request, he now resolves. His prayer is a request and then a resolution. His resolution is this. He knows that God's justice will prevail in the end. 
He doesn't see justice right now, but he knows that in the end, God's justice will have God's way. And so he says in verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. And now we're all embarrassed. (laughs) And now you go, I shouldn't have invited my friend to church today. We squirm as modern people when we read stuff like that. You know, and one scholar says it's easy for you to squirm if you've never lived the life that David lived. It's easier, it's easier for you to squirm at phrases like that if you have not experienced what the refugees, as, as the seeps have just shared with us, have experienced. Literally walking the souls off your feet a quarter of the way around, around the planet showing up in safety when one of your children or your spouse has died along the way, either murdered or hyperthermia. It's easy to be offended at a phrase like that when you have not suffered like David suffered, when you have not literally been hunted for your life. So just a word of caution there, if you're immediately frustrated by our modern sensibilities when you see, you know, the righteous will bathe their blood in, in, um, bathe their feet in, in the blood of the wicked, Uh, Now look, I squirm too, okay? I I squirm too when I see stuff like this. But listen, listen to me. It is better to pray it than to do it. I am serious. It is better to pray it than to do such a thing. It is better to work through one's anger in meditation and in prayer. It is better to confess your inner hatred to a God who is just then act on that hatred. Eugene Peterson, in his very helpful book about understanding the Psalms, what they are for and how they help us, he writes this, our hate needs to be prayed, not suppressed. Hate is our emotional link with the spirituality of evil. It is the volcanic eruption of outrage when the holiness of being, ours and another's, has been violated. You see what Peterson is saying? Without hatred, you can't recognize evil for truly what it is. You know, I think why so many angry, confused people are blowing up shopping malls in our society and shooting up churches and elementary schools and nightclubs is because people aren't working out their anger and hatred in meditation and prayer. They are acting on their anger and hatred. We are a confused society. Our anger and hatred need to be prayed, not suppressed. It is because it is suppressed that you act out. It is because it is suppressed that you strike the rock and bring dishonor to the name of God as even Moses once did in his frustration. But it was by praying through his hatred and his anger that David found a satisfying answer to his question and his frustrating situation. Through meditation and prayer, David was able to acknowledge that the world is unjust, but God is not. And in the end, he will prevail. Now, why does the God of the Bible invite anger and hatred? in our prayers. Have you thought about that? Like, why? You know, we're always trying to get our kids to behave in public. (laughs) You know, the second one of them 
cocks back his fist to punch his sibling. You're like, stop, stop, stop. Right? But, but, but think about it. We're God's children. Why in prayer does God not immediately shut up? Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. Hatred is bad. Hatred is bad. Watch your anger. Why does our heavenly father invite us to bring our anger and hatred to him? Why doesn't he just shut us up? Why does he let us talk to him about it? Because it is far better to bring it to him. If you're going to be angry, you're filled with hatred, bring it to me, I can handle it. Your poor neighbor cannot. Right? David, when David was severely disciplined by the Lord toward the end of his life, laid on, you know, he was a, very, he was a ver- veteran leader and he made a big mistake. And, and God said, look, justice needs to be served for the mistake you've made. You decide how you want me to deal with this. You want me to deal with you? You, you want me to deal with you? Or, or you know, do you want me to deal with the people of Israel? And David made this interesting comment. He said, I'd rather fall into the hands of God than fall into the hands of men. God is far more merciful than you are. And by bringing your anger and hatred to him in meditation and prayer, he is sparing the people who are going to have to deal with the brunt of your anger and hatred. You will be far less of a manipulative, manipulative spouse if you bring your anger and hatred to God in prayer. You will be far less of an abusive parent if you bring your anger and hatred to God in meditation and prayer. God knows it is far better to pray your hatred and uh, meditate on your hatred and your anger to him before you act or speak or do anything. The righteous believer faces reality and responds to it wisely. The reality of things is that the powerful oppress the vulnerable. That's the way the world works. Are there exceptions? Of course. But in general, what we know is true in the news and what we even see in scripture is that the rich oppress the poor. The haves oppress the have-nots. Don't tell me that's not true. Of course it's true. The history books are full of this. And even the Bible uh, uh, testifies to that. The teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter four would say, again, I saw all the oppressions that are under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And I thought, the dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I find it interesting that young adults in our society who are having fewer and fewer children or no children at all, we're all related to somebody who says, I'm not getting married. I'm going to live with someone, but we're not going to get married. And you know what? We're not going to have children. I don't want to bring a child into this world, into this society. We've all heard this, right? The birth rate's going down because healthy, capable people who can parent refuse to bring more life into this messed up world. You want to know something? That secular mindset, they actually see the reality of things. They agree with the teacher in Ecclesiastes that things are messed up and it would be better to not have been born at all than to endure 
the reality of things. They're seeing the reality of things. But they don't have a satisfying response. They don't have a satisfying response. The Christian's response to the reality of things is very simply twofold. First, no one great or small will escape God's coming justice. No one. Secondly, those who are in Christ, those who give themselves to Jesus, those who belong to God's reigning king and returning king will escape that justice. Now, that is a great comfort to you or a great terror, depending on your vantage point. If you're in Christ, if you know he's already judged your sins, that is a great comfort to you. If you're relying on yourself, it should be a great terror that no one great or small will ever escape the right, good, holy, righteous justice of God. Now that gives me enough comfort and enough hope to say, you know what, maybe I can raise children in this messed up world. Maybe I can have a meaningful vocation and profession in this messed up world. Maybe I can develop friendships and cultivate a healthy marriage in this messed up world. Because God is returning and my sins have already been judged on the cross with Jesus. So if you're a believer and if you are following Jesus, frankly, I think anybody in the room, get realistic about human leadership and people in authority. We have to get sober about our views on human leadership. Whether it's the, the people who have authority over us in, in, in our neighborhoods and in our homes and where we work or in our church, or, or, or whether it's the, you know, the, the heavyweights in the world and in our society who have authority over us. We have to get realistic about human leadership and we have to hope in a just God. Get, real, get realistic and sober about your leaders and put your greatest hope in a just God. Ask yourself, okay? Ask, this is practical now. Ask yourself, who in my life or in the world am I really ticked at? Who has really ticked you off? You're thinking of them right now. Who in the world and who in your life are you really ticked off at? And learn to distinguish between righteous anger and unrighteous anger when it comes to that person when it comes to that authority, when it comes to that people group? Who are you ticked off at? And learn to distinguish between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Very helpful book on the Psalms as they relate to your emotions. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman III. Um, the, uh, the Cry of the Soul. It's called The Cry of the Soul. And, and, and they do exactly this. They, they distinguish. They say unrighteous anger refuses to wait for God's justice. And so you condemn people. You condemn the people of this world. You condemn the people you don't like and the people you disagree with. And you condemn the people who have hurt you. You won't wait for God to be just and so you decide to play God yourself. That's unrighteous anger. Righteous anger, on the other hand, waits for God's justice to unfold. Whether in this life or the next, Righteous anger waits for God's justice while condemning, not the people, condemning injustice now in this world. 
So unrighteous anger is playing God yourself. Righteous anger is knowing that you're not God and letting him be God in his time. Learn to distinguish between righteous anger and unrighteous anger with that person or group or leader that you're ticked off at. Do you have little to no power in your life or in this world or in your situation? Do you have no power, no influence? Then wait in God's justice. Wait in hope for God's justice. David had power and influence, and he even knew. He even knew he had to wait. Surely you can. Surely you can find the faith to wait for God to act. Maybe you have some power. Maybe you have some influence in the world or where you are. Okay, then leverage it for good. Leverage it for good. But remember, your impact will only be limited, will only go so far. That's having a wise, realistic view of the reality of things. If you have any influence and power, leverage it well, but realize it will only be so effective. It will lead to a temporary peace. It will not lead to a permanent, long-lasting justice. And this is how the wise believer responds to reality. I'm going to leverage what I can to do good, but I'm going to realize that it is only going to be so effective and it is only going to last for so long in this fallen world. Are you, are you nurturing, are, are you cuddling a misguided hope for, some, for, for leaders? Do you have a misguided hope for your leaders? Or are you harboring a, an unfiltered hatred for other leaders? And I think this is our problem in the world. This is our society. People are either, either have too much hope in some leaders, right, or, or they have this unfiltered hatred for others. Um, misguided hope in leadership. You know, people are too impressed with their leaders now. People channel all of their hope for justice and for peace and for happiness. They channel all of that hope into their political leaders and, and into their cultural heroes. You know, whether it's, whether it's people like Oprah or, or Trump or Obama, we, people put all their hope in our celebrities and leaders. Have you made these civil servants or celebrity entrepreneurs your false gods? Ask yourself the question. Where is your hope? And why are you frustrated? Unfiltered hate, right? Unfiltered hatred, on the other hand. People become radically disenfranchised and angry with their leaders. Since in our society it is a known right to one's own happiness, to pursue your own happiness, well, then you think, well, I'm not happy, so it's their fault. It's their fault that I'm unhappy. You have to ask yourself, am, am I harboring an unfiltered, unmeditated, unprayed hatred towards the leaders who have let me down? Whether you're dealing with a misguided hope and they're your hero, right, and you've made them a false god, or, or whether you're dealing with an unfiltered hatred and they're really, you've made them false demons, Right? You've, 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 you've asked limited, frail human beings to do everything for you, to heal you. You've got to ask yourself where you're at. And you've got to get sober and get real about leadership. 
There really, listen, here's the hope of Psalm 58. There is a solid promise for satisfying justice, for true satisfying justice, and it's this, it's a, there's a just reward after the predicament that we're in. We're all in this predicament together, right? Nobody's perfect. We can't put all of our hope in leadership and in regimes, and, and, and there is hope beyond that predicament. There is something satisfying and eternal, and Isaiah, the prophet, picked up on it, Isaiah, uh, long, long before, uh, after David, but long before Jesus, Isaiah said a day's gonna come when human leaders, yeah, human leaders would satisfy justice and establish lasting peace. Listen to Isaiah 33. Actually, it was part of our call to worship. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. I want you to calm down right now and just close your eyes and breathe. Just breathe. Think of who you're ticked at. Think of who you're ticked at and just breathe. And listen to the word of the Lord. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Is that not a final answer to all of our injustice? Is that not a final answer to the imperfect leadership that we've seen in this world? Is that not what you are longing for when you think of that person who's hurt you or abused you or you think of that person whose legislation has made your job really difficult. Is this not what you are hoping for? A king who reigns in righteousness and princes who rule in justice, who are hiding places from the wind. You know, those of you in officer training and those of you who are elders and deacons, we'd say this at the beginning of every training process every year. This is God's vision for righteous leaders. A hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. If you are a leader in the church, if you are a parent who parents with the wisdom and grace of Jesus, if you are an employer or a supervisor or a teacher who works out of the grace and wisdom of Jesus, you may be the first person, you may be the first hint of righteousness and justice and peace that a child ever experiences in this world, that a person who's been hurt ever experiences in this world. You are a foretaste of this coming king who will reign in righteousness and of his sons and daughters who will be like shelters from the storm. Is this not the final answer you are looking for? Is it not the hope that you have falsely pinned on these politicians and celebrities and parents and teachers and besties who cannot fulfill your expectations of them? But one human leader, one human leader has prepared the way for lasting justice and he will soon bring it. The Apostle John in his revelation said of Jesus Christ that 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Here we go squirming again. He said that Jesus will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And and we stop and say, why? Why are the Messiah's robes dipped in blood? Why is Jesus, of all people, the good shepherd, the gentle lamb of God, the one who is full of grace and truth and who had the greatest compassion for the least of these? Why are his robes dipped in blood? That's not the Jesus we want. And the answer is astounding because Jesus is the only human leader, yes, human leader, and that's why we believe in the incarnation. Jesus is the only human leader who can wear a robe dipped in blood justly. He is the only one who can wear that robe. He is the only one who can bring justice to the deepest crimes of history. He is the only one who has the authority and the innocence and the holiness to bring final justice to all the wrong that you have faced, to all the hurt that you have endured. He is the only one who is worthy of justice. And here's the most amazing thing, that the one who will have his robes dipped in blood in the justice of humanity first shed his own. That is the God we worship, a God who first brought justice upon himself. The blood of Jesus is an indication that God cares deeply about all the pain that we are enduring today. The blood of Jesus justifies the sins of anyone who is, as we say, in Christ. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross both justifies and judges humanity. It is is the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Do you realize that if Jesus is your hope, if you're not putting your hope for justice in human leaders and you're putting your hope in Jesus to judge justly, then do you realize when he shed his blood on the cross, you are justified. Your sins were judged on the cross. It's over. It's over for you. Your sins are forgiven and he has redeemed you. And so you live in comfort and you can raise children in this messed up world and you can do good work in which your labor is not in vain. And you can work your way through that anger and hatred in meditation and prayer to have solid, satisfying answers to all the mess that we see in this world so that you don't have to yourself become part of the perpetuation of the mess itself. But the blood of Jesus also means that those who are outside of it, that justice is still coming for them. Why would you wait for that to happen to you? Trust in Jesus today. Don't wait. Allow the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sins to cover and justify and forgive you. And find hope that no injustice, great or small, will escape his coming judgment. So we agree, along with David, 
who said that mankind will someday say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Is there prevailing justice on the earth? No. And if you're hungering and thirsting for that, you will always remain unsatisfied. And if you are hungering and thirsting for vengeance in this life, be careful what you ask for. You just might get it, but you'll be on the receiving end of it. God is just, and he is coming. There is no prevailing justice on the earth, but God is just, and he is coming. And so by putting our greatest hope in him and in his justice, it helps us become less, less frantic and less rageful when we see earthly injustice. And we become less confused about why we're not seeing justice now and why we're not seeing peace now and why we're not seeing final reconciliation right now. There is a just God and he is coming. So get realistic about your leaders, get realistic about people in authority and hope in a just God. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, these are, these, are, these are difficult passages for us to, to work through. But we confess that we're just people and our, our knowledge, our experience, our wisdom uh, is, is very limited. Uh, and so we ask that you would help us through meditation and prayer and through conversation with one another, uh, that, 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 that you would help us wrestle with uh, uh, all that we see uh, that angers us or confuses us. Father, help us to bring the ugliest emotions and, and thoughts that we have to you in prayer so that you can help us sort them out. Thank you that you do not judge us for uh, our thoughts, but that you allow us to work them out. And you do respond to us, and you have responded in your word, and you have responded through your son. Uh, help us to stop playing God and remember that we are not, and wait upon you for an answer. Amen.